Where else can we go? Where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Remind us of that. Humble us, Lord, by that. It is not in us. It is not in our ability to reason. Lord, it is not merely in your creation. There is nowhere else we can go but to you in your word. You have the words of eternal life. So, Lord, set our hearts towards you this morning that we may see your glory, your greatness, your grace, your power, your love, your salvation, and our desperate need of it. Lord, humble us. Tear down our pride, Father, that we might find that when we die to ourselves and come to Christ, we have all that we need. Help us in that way this morning, Lord. We ask for your glory and for our good. Amen. So turn, if you would, in your Bibles to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 20 through 26. John 12, 20 through 26. So these last several sermons here in John, I've been trying to make sure that we see the larger flow of the story as we look at our passage, and today is going to be no different. We need to remember, before we even start, we need to remember that our story today comes right after John's telling of the triumphal entry when Christ came into Jerusalem and the Jews were joyously welcoming their king. It's significant that last week, the Jews were the ones in the spotlight. They were welcoming Jesus, even though they didn't really understand. If you remember, we said last week, they said all the right words at all the right times to the exact right person, but they didn't really understand what was actually happening. Only God fully knew that Jesus did not have his eyes focused in that moment on the throne in Jerusalem, but Jesus had his eyes focused on the cross. But the focus was on the Jews and all that they were doing, and it's important that we see that last week in the text right before this one, because this week the focus turns to the Greeks, these Greeks that we're going to read about. So these were people who by birth were not God's people. And their arrival in the story here, this is the first time that we see them. It marks another turn in the gospel. Notice, we're about to read this, notice how Jesus immediately responds when he's told that a group of Greeks have come saying they wish to see him. Let's start in verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life will lose it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, 
the Father will honor him. All right, so I've got three points that are in your bulletin. Those three points, they form a complete sentence that I think summarizes this passage very well. Before I even look at it, though, I do just want to point out one thing. This is sort of a, a little bit of an aside, but I just thought it was really uh, a beautiful thing. Um, J- James Boyce, in preaching on this sermon, uh, told a story about how um, he went to this church in Pennsylvania to preach. And you know how uh, many churches, they've got, a, instead of a, a small pulpit like this one, they'll have like, you know, a big, massive pulpit, and it'll have, it'll have something you know, uh, engraved out here for you guys all to, to look at, um, some phrase or something. Well, he said you know, he went to his uh, preach in Pennsylvania, and he thought it was so precious they had on the inside of the pulpit, right, right here where I'm facing, just right across uh, the lectern, they had engraved, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And I thought that's, a, that's really a, a beautiful sentiment, right? The, my, my role as, as a preacher here this morning uh, is not to, to show you myself or anything else, but it's to show you Christ. You, you ought to be here to see Jesus. So I just thought that was a really neat thing to have engraved on the, the top of the pulpit there. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. What a, what a beautiful sentiment from these Greeks coming. And just imagine all that they would have heard about Jesus. My first point here is this. Now that the Greeks are here. Now that the Greeks are here. That's point number one. There's definitely some very intentional symbolism going on here. So when you think that now that the Greeks are here, that's sort of how it feels. Look what happens. You know, we have been focusing in this whole book, we've been focusing entirely on the Jews. Now you can make, it, you can, you can make the case perhaps in chapter 4. Remember in chapter 4 we went over to visit Samaria for a chapter, had a conversation with the woman in the well, uh, the woman by the well there in Samaria. Um, you could make the argument, well, that wasn't the Jews, but isn't that the exact argument uh, between the Samaritans and the Jews? They're practically co- cousins. The whole argument in Samaria was about how, by blood, the Samaritans have a claim on the Old Testament Scriptures. They have the same rights. They have the same ancestry as the Jews. So even with the Samaritans, we were still in a, a bit of a family discussion that was going on there. So the whole book up until now has been focused on the Jewish life and the Jewish story of Jesus coming to the Jewish festivals and engaging with the Jewish leadership. Now, all of a sudden, among those at the feast are some Greeks. These are likely men who would have been called God-fearers. Um, they probably, they may have been full proselytes to Judaism. Um, that is, they were full proselytes who had gotten circumcised, done the whole nine yards, uh, and gone with it. Uh, most commentators agree that they, they probably weren't. If they were full pro- proselytes, they probably would have been described as something a little bit more than just Greeks. But there were also many who were called God-fearers who were there. These were Greeks who had a deep admiration for for Judaism. And they would come to Jerusalem for all of the feasts. And they would remain in the court of the Gentiles uh, in the temple. And so here they are. They're a part of this massive crowd. Don't forget... There was a massive crowd. We're talking, you know, potentially hundreds of thousands of people around Jerusalem at this time. And here are some Greeks who are coming and they're looking for Jesus. 
Now, there's this complicated order of events here where they come to Philip, and, and Philip doesn't seem to know what to do, so he goes to get Andrew, and then the two of them, they go to Jesus. Um, it's, it's hard to know exactly why John gives all of these details. You know, some speculation is that Philip's a Greek name, even though Philip wasn't himself a Greek, and, you know, maybe there has something to do with that. Um, there is one interesting thing here to note, however. It seems that the disciples weren't really clear on what to do about some Greeks who wanted to come and see Jesus. It doesn't seem like there's an obvious preparation. It's like they weren't really prepared to deal with the situation of some Greeks who want to come and see Jesus. And so it's, it's not obvious to Philip what to do. So he's got to get some advice here from Andrew. And then the two of them go, you know, do we let the Greeks talk to Jesus? I mean, is that, uh, is that really what we want to spend time on here in the, in the Passover festival? So there's some symbolism there, I think, that, that the disciples don't know what to do with these Greeks who want to come and see Jesus. Because they should have been prepared from a biblical perspective if they truly believed that Jesus was who he said he was. Think about what Psalm 86 says. Psalm 86 says, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord. All the nations that you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. So it is interesting to note that in this moment, his own disciples aren't sure what to do with these Greeks who want to come and see him. This is another example of the disciples really don't understand the full scope of what's happening here yet. But Jesus does. And so look what happens here. Philip and Andrew, they go to Jesus, and then look at his immediate response. Isn't it interesting? The, the Greeks just never show up again in this story. We have no idea whether he actually met with them or not. He doesn't say, hey, yeah, no, no, bring, bring them on over here. On the flip side, he doesn't say, no, I, I won't talk with them right now. No, instead, Jesus does something completely different when they say, hey, there's some Greeks here to see you. Look at this. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So we have seen this phrase, the hour, five times before this in John. And it was always looking forward. My time is not yet. The hour has not yet come. But as soon as as the Greeks show up, that changes, doesn't it? Immediately, in response to hearing that these Greeks wish to see him, Jesus changes from saying the hour is come or the hour has not yet come to the hour has come. There is something vitally important about these Greeks showing up. It's like a bell was rung and the round has now finally started. Now that they're here, the hour has started and we are going to be in that hour until his death. And what kicked it off? These Greeks showing up kicked it off. It's a fascinating moment. When you, when you read this in the flow of the Gospel of John, what is it about these Greeks that kick off the hour? When the triumphal entry of all things didn't kick off this hour. 
The resurrection of Lazarus didn't kick off this hour. The anointing that Mary did, the anointing of the lamb before the sacrifice, that's not what kicked off the hour. What is it about these Greeks that kicks off the hour? He sees them and he turns to his disciples and he goes, now the time has come. That's why I'm calling this point, now that the Greeks are here. Because it seems like Jesus was waiting for them to arrive, for them to show up on the scene, and for them to show interest in Him, to want to come to Him. Of course, the answer is clear to us, isn't it? The hour that Jesus has been looking forward to is not just about the Jewish people. It's not just about fulfilling for them the promises. It is about all the nations. You and I this morning should take so much comfort from how John tells this story. Because you and I, by blood, are outside of the covenant people of Israel. You and I, Christian, we are the ones who are in view here. This is a reminder to you that God's eternal plan was always to include us. The Greeks here, they symbolize the other nations, the rest of the world coming to the great shepherd. This was God's plan of salvation for the whole world. So, now that the Greeks are here, that brings us to our second point. It's time for a glorious beginning. Now that the Greeks are here, it's time for a glorious beginning. Notice something else here. Now that the Greeks are here, Jesus says the hour has come for the Son of Man to what? Now the hour has come for the Son of Man to die a horrible death. Now the hour has come for the Son of Man to undergo terrible shame, to be mocked and ridiculed. Now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be cursed on a tree. That's not what it says, though. Now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. To be glorified. Now we know that what that means is He's going to be cursed on a tree. He is going to be mocked and ridiculed. He is going to undergo shame. He is going to be crucified for goodness sake. We know that's what's going to happen. Now that the hour is here, He's going to undergo this terrible death. But that's not what He says. He says, now's the hour for Him to be glorified. How do we reconcile those two things? This theme of His glory in His death, we're going to explore that more and more deeply until we actually arrive at the cross. We're introducing it here, but we're going to be bringing this up over the coming weeks many times. But it is so important to see that Jesus does not view His coming death as His shame. 
He does not view His coming death as anything but His glorification. This great, perfect, sacrificial act is a moment of pure glory where the perfect Lamb does something He does not have to do. He can substitute Himself for people who are shamed. He can cleanse him, cleanse those people from their guilt. But this is not His moment of shame. This is not His moment of guilt. Isaiah says in Isaiah 52, Behold, My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. And he shall be exalted. This right before Isaiah describes the servant as a suffering servant. And sure enough, the death of Jesus, that's what's on his mind. But he sees it as a moment where he's going to be glorified, not shamed. And he goes on to explain how that is with this illustration that these first century Jews would understand. One way that this is a moment of glorification and not shame could be described like this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So the principle is, in order for the harvest to come, in order for the harvest to come, the grain has to die first. And it has to go into the ground first. That's the way it works. They would have understood this principle. In order for the harvest, this beautiful, rich harvest that, that they're longing for, the glorious harvest, right? In order for that to come, the wheat has to die first and, and something has to be buried in the ground. And then from that death and from that burial, then the harvest comes. And so here's what Jesus is saying. He is the grain of wheat. He must fall into the earth. And He must die. But if He does that, like that grain of wheat, if He dies and He goes into the earth, then a beautiful harvest is going to come. Now if He doesn't die, then He's going to be alone. That illustration actually carries pretty well. If he doesn't die, he's going to be alone. Alone is what? Alone is the only righteous person allowed to come into the presence of God. Alone is the only rightful member of God's family. If he doesn't die, he is alone. Because none of us can go where he is. Where he's going, we can't follow. None of us can rightfully be a child of God on our own. So if he doesn't die, then he is alone. But if he dies, a beautiful harvest will come. This is what the disciples didn't understand in this moment about Jesus' death and why it was so necessary. Nobody can join Him because our sin won't allow us to be there. We're not righteous enough. He has to die for our sin and then give us His righteousness. 
in order for us to be able to join Him. But what does that have to do with the Greeks? Well, now that they're in the picture, John loves symbolism. If you haven't seen that by now, you haven't been paying attention. John loves symbolism. And now that the Greeks are in the picture, we can talk about Jesus dying in order for the expansion of the kingdom of God all around the world. The harvest that he's talking about is the harvest from the whole world. You and me. We would not be included in that harvest unless that harvest were for the nations. God's beautiful goal is to adopt into His family people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. What a beautiful picture. So now that the Greeks are here, it is time for a glorious beginning. One that will spread around the world. One where millions will find freedom from slavery to sin. Millions will find joy because they have met their king and they were given a new life. But it starts with a death. It must start with a death. The ESV Study Bible says the arrival of Greek signals to Jesus that this mission is about to come to an end. The earthly mission is about to come to an end. But that's only half right, isn't it? While this mission is coming to an end, it's really the beginning. It's really and truly the beginning of a harvest of souls that won't end until Jesus returns. You and I are living right now in the midst of the effects of this moment. This is the moment where the harvest is happening. It reminds you of what we read at the beginning of the service from Isaiah 51. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. And my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me. And for my arm they wait. His picture was he was always going out. And Christians, he's going out right now. How is he doing that? Well, is he not doing that through you? Are you not taking the message that now is the time for the harvest? That God's salvation is at hand now? You and I have the opportunity to be in the family of God? For all of eternity? I love how Charles Spurgeon describes this moment when Jesus sees the Greeks. He says, He saw in that company of Greeks the vanguard of that great army that shall yet come to Him out of every nation under heaven. In the prospect of that great ingathering, He looked beyond the impending shame and suffering and spoke even of the hour of His death as the time when He should be glorified. It is completely appropriate, guys, to call the cross the hour when the Son of Man was glorified. As awful as it was, there was shame involved in the cross. 
but it was our shame, not his. There was evil involved in the cross, but it was our evil, not his. Everything bad about the cross is really about us. It's about the fact that your sin and my sin demanded such a terrible response. Everything that's shameful about the cross is our shame. It's to His glory that when He did not have to, in His perfection, in His righteousness, in His purity, out of His love, He took on the shame that you and I deserve. He took on the wickedness that you and I have produced. He took on the judgment that rightly should have come to us. That's to His glory. He was glorified in that moment for taking what we rightly should have borne. How humbling is that, right? How humbling it is and how precious it ought to be that God would do that for you. No, for Jesus this was glorious. I want to think of at least three more reasons here why it was glorious for Jesus because it is glorious. One, because he chose to do it when he didn't have to do it. He chose to do it when he did not have to do it. Two, because it showed his absolute purity. His perfect, righteous spotlessness was on display. And then the third reason why it was so glorious is it bore such incredible fruit. When you take such comfort in the fact that your loved ones are trusting in Christ, that's the fruit of this glory. When you hope that your loved ones would trust in Christ, you know it is possible because of the fruit of this glory. There is a beauty in the glory of the cross. It shames us. It humbles us. It can break us down as we realize that it highlights our inability, but it glorifies Jesus Christ. Here's the amazing thing. Here's the amazing thing. We can understand that the cross is glorious for the Son of Man. And then we can also understand that it is shameful for us. It highlights His perfection and it highlights our imperfections. It highlights His righteousness and it highlights our wretchedness and our unrighteousness. But here's the most beautiful and unbelievable thing about this. He is glorified in it. And then do you know what Jesus does with the glory that he receives in there? We're going to see this in just a few weeks. But do you know what he does? He shares it with you and me. The glory that he receives is glory that he shares. 
So not only does he take our wickedness, not only does he take our shame, not only does he take our guilt, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he paid for it. He took it. Not only did he do all of that, but then the glory that he receives is glory that he shares. You become part of his family. You're adopted as his child. It was precious. Now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And in His glorification is our salvation. Do you see this morning how you are saved by what Jesus does on the cross? Perhaps you've not trusted in Jesus, but do you see how the gospel message that Christianity gives, the gospel message that the Word gives is that you need to be saved. In your sin, you need to be saved. Christ's death on the cross for you is the salvation. And it brings you into the glorious relationship of the Father and the Son. And that brings us to the final thing today. So now that the Greeks are here, it's time for a glorious beginning. Third point. But it comes at a cost for everyone. Now that the Greeks are here, it's time for a glorious beginning, but it comes at a cost for everyone. Now that Jesus has given the illustration that a seed has to die in order for fruit to come, it's as if he turns to the, the disciples here and he gives them a principle that they're going to need if they want to follow him. He knows he's going to his death. He's known that the whole time. If he doesn't go to his death, you and I don't get salvation. We don't need him to go to the throne at this point. We need him to go to the cross. He knows that because He knows we need forgiveness and we need righteousness. We need something to break this problem of separation from God. He's already accepted that. He's willingly going to the cross for us. Death is on Jesus' mind in this passage when He's talking to His disciples. His death, but then He takes it a step further. There's a principle they're going to need if they want to follow him even as he goes to his death. And so he, he does this in two parts here. First, he says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He, he's putting here the value of your focus on this life. What is the value of your focus here on this life? Well, we already know that for him, he's already set his heart and his eyes on the cross. It's not on this life at all. He's here to defeat death. But this kind of contrast here where he says one will love it, the other will hate it. Um, we need to be careful as we read that. This is what D.A. Carson describes as a Semitic idiom that articulates fundamental preference, not hate on absolute scale. So, so in other words, it means that when you're comparing two things this way, you're pointing out that one is fundamentally, absolutely to be preferred over the other in every situation.
love life, you're going to lose it. Didn't we just see an example of that with the Sanhedrin? When we looked at the council of the Sanhedrin just a few weeks ago, it was a perfect example. They loved their life so much. They loved their power. They loved their status. They loved their comfort. They loved everything that they had so much that they were willing to kill Jesus for it. But ultimately, they would lose it all anyway. They lost it all to Rome anyway. Exactly what they feared happened anyway. They loved their life, but loving your life and holding on to it like that, it's, it's fruitless, ultimately. We don't have that measure of control over our lives anyway. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world if he loses his own soul? So Jesus has set the example himself. He is not fixated on this life. He came to die so we would have hope beyond this life. So he's telling his disciples, if you love this life so much that you will hold on to it at every cost, you're going to lose it anyway. You cannot keep it. And so then he gives the other side where he says, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now this is where that Semitic idiom comes into play. It doesn't mean absolute hate the way that we might mean it when we say, well, I hate my life right now. This isn't affirming perhaps your pessimism or your depression or what not to go, hey, you just go ahead and hate your life right now. I mean, that wouldn't work, right? We, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. We're, we're to give thanks and live, live a life of gratitude and thankfulness. Now, this is what D.A. Carson explains. What they're talking about is an, when, when this language is used in this sort of Semitic idiom or, or, or way of phrasing things, it shows an absolute fundamental preference Every single time, if you have to choose between focusing on this life and focusing on what's to come, you should always choose what is to come. When we idolize our lives now, no, instead, we don't hold on to our lives at all costs. We don't prefer this life that we have created for ourselves. We don't prefer that over what God has done, is doing, and has promised He will do. And that applies to death. Jesus is going to the cross. But then He comes to verse 26. And we realize that Jesus is not just thinking about his own death here. He's thinking about what his servants are going to be called to do as well. And they have to understand that if they also give up their lives, there's glory in that too. He says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. By service here, Jesus clearly means give your life up for my service. He uses that word for service here three times in a row. If you want to serve Jesus, you have to follow him. In the context, that means you go where he goes. You know, baptism is a picture of this, isn't it? 
Where do we follow Jesus? We follow Jesus into his death. Ultimately, that's where we all must follow Jesus. Our relationship to death has changed now too. We must die to ourselves, crucified with Christ. Death no longer rules over you, Christian. You have a different relationship to it. Death is now the pathway to life with God for all eternity. So you will follow Jesus if you're His servant. And that may include includes living your whole life until you die for Him. And it certainly includes being willing to live your life all the way until you die for Him and being willing to die for Him. That may be included as well. He says where, where Jesus is, His servant will be. I think that's a very clear and simple statement. Where He is, His servant will be. How do you know that you are a servant of Jesus? Well, are you with Him? Are you living and walking and acting and speaking and loving and serving in the presence of Christ? Or have you pushed Christ away? Have you created a little space for Him and that's where Christ lives and I go and join Him there, you know, when I feel comfortable doing it? That's not service. Where the Master is, that's where His servants will be found. So we're not going to sugarcoat this. This passage actually ends on a, on a very troubling and heavy note. If Jesus is the grain, then He must die for God's fruit to grow. That's heavy enough. But then Jesus seems to be thinking about His death here. And then He turns to His disciples as if to say, by the way, you will suffer too. If I'm going to death in this world, so will you. If you're going to be my servant, you won't be able to love your life in this world so much that you're unwilling to lose it for my behalf. You are meant to love me. And that goes beyond death and suffering. How completely are you called to live for Christ? I think that's a question that we wrestle with. How completely are you called to live for Christ? Well, of course, the answer is fully. Like Paul, we, we are to find ourselves being poured out like a drink offering. And you know, there is a part of us that wrestles so much with that. Paul Tripp says, the DNA of sin is selfishness. The DNA, the makeup of sin, is selfishness. Sin is about self-focus and self-glory. It is motivated by what we want, when we want it, and how we want it. I don't want to suffer. I want comfort. I want a nice life. Jesus here, is, he, he knows He's going to His death. And He's trying to instill something in His servants, His disciples, something that needs to be instilled in each one of us. The picture of dying to self is vital 
for finding joy in serving Jesus. We won't really find joy in Jesus until we've died to ourselves and we live for Him. Until we are willing to have ourselves crucified on that cross, willing to undergo the, the shame of the crucifixion, until we are willing to realize we must die so that we might live for Him. Jesus here, He's thinking of His coming death. We're going to end where His focus is, where His servant's focus is. He's got to die, and we have to die with Him. Paul says it in Romans 6. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into His death. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Paul keeps going on this principle too, right? He says, we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You had to die. Your sin has to die on the cross. So you can be freed from it. What a precious gift that is. When Jesus has His death on His mind, He has this death on His mind as well. There's glory in that. Christian, He knows that there is freedom for you on the other side of the cross. Perfect freedom. On the other side of the cross, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It's impossible. He knows that when He goes to the cross, but you have to understand the cost isn't just to Him. There is a cost to you as well. That sinful man has to die. The old self has to die. Now, you'd want to say, well, that shouldn't be counted as a cost at all, right? <laughs> That's a blessing. I know what my heart is capable with. I have battled with myself enough. But so often, we do not leave our old man at the cross. So often, we battle against the fact that our flesh died there and we are free and we carry around the specter of our guilt and our shame instead of laying it down at the feet of Christ and believing that his death was sufficient for your salvation there's a cost to us it's a cost that every one of us ought to be willing to not only pay but find joy in paying die to yourself and find freedom in Christ but it's a battle for us you have to see that you must pay that price. The old man must die. This is the principle. The principle is the same for us. If you want to bear fruit, something has to die in you. Your sin has to die if fruit is going to grow. Your sin dies. And it's the, it's the fruit of Christ that grows from that soil. The redemption of Christ from your new heart. It's time for a glorious beginning, but it comes at a cost for everyone. 
The cost is absolutely worth it. See that, but you have to pay it. Leave your sin at the cross of Christ and trust that He is enough and He is sufficient. This is not something just to laugh off. This is so heavy. Just look down at the very next verse. We're going to, be, we're going to pick up here next week. The Lord, the Word of God, the Son of Man and the Son of God says in the next verse, Now is my soul troubled. I'm not saying it's easy. We are wading into dark and heavy things because of our sin. But you have to understand the way to following Christ. But oh my goodness, we have to see how worth it it is. We have to be able to come out on the other side and look at the cross and look at Christ on the cross and go how glorious He is. And He would share that with me. I'm going to pray. And then when I'm done, we're going to sing, Yet Not I But Christ Through Me again. And then we'll end with the Romans 11 doxology. But I think that that song is a wonderful response for us to think through this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, I pray that everyone here, when we consider our own hearts, we would be grieved by the brokenness, Lord. the self-centeredness, the shame, that we would see that truly, that we would realize that's why Jesus had to go through something as awful as his death on the cross. But Lord, I pray that we would also see the glory in it, the freedom in it, the hope and the love that are displayed when the spotless lamb was sacrificed on our behalf. Father, we are prone to carry around our sinful old man instead of leaving that sin and that judgment at the cross and living fully for Christ. Father, I pray that we would find our freedom in Him. Amen.